Yes, hello, welcome, happy Monday. Welcome to the Not The Top 20 podcast, the Monday podcast where myself, Ali Maxwell, and on the line with me today, George Ellick, run through the weekend action in the EFL. And it was an intriguing weekend, lots of interesting topics chucked up, and we're going to get our teeth into all of them without delay, actually, George. I'm not even going to ask how you are, because I'd like to talk about the championship, if that's all right with you. We're up to a heady 2.07 goals per game now. After Ooh. last week, when we moaned about only two goals per game, it's nosebleed territory after the midweek action and the weekend ticked us up just a little bit. We had five one-all draws in the championship on the weekend, so we pretty much set those aside. And we're going to start with our runaway league leaders, which I'm legally allowed to say, almost obliged to say, when a team is five points clear after seven games. Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> Reading three, Rotherham nil, Reading's biggest win of the season, and yet arguably one of their worst performances, certainly up until their first goal. Uh, a line taken from the Tilehurst End site, a brilliant Reading blog site. Uh, in the first half against Rotherham, the Royals managed just two touches in the final third and one shot, which was Yaku Mate's 41st minute opener. In the second half, an overhead kick from Mate. And a late pen from Lucas Schrau made it 3-0. It's their sixth clean sheet in seven league games. They've got 19 points. George Ellick, we might have lost Marcelo Bielsa, but we gained Velko <laughs> Paunovic. Yes. And, you know, regular listeners to the pod know that I need no reason to wax lyrical about Reading on this podcast. Correct. And as you mentioned here, it wasn't a great performance it wasn't a great performance either against Wickham in their previous win but they are finding moments of real brilliance to to get the three points that their performance didn't necessarily deserve Ajari's assist for the first Mete goal was basically as good a bit of individual skill and creative play as you're going to see Mete's ability to shift the ball out and then get the bicycle kick away or are we calling it a scissor kick what are we calling it an, it overhead, really an, an overhead. overhead kick it was something in that kind of grey area um, but a brilliant, brilliant goal again. And then Lucas Shaw, um, you know, doing what he does with the penalty and having won it himself. The, the the concern for me is that Reading's performances, despite the scorelines looking pretty good with the two wins to nil at home, the performances against Wickham and Rotherham, two of the sides who have to be seen as the weakest teams in the league, hasn't been very good. Um, you know, they... Even Reading fans themselves will hold their hands up and say against both, they were not as dominant as they'd have hoped. They weren't as dominant as the aggregate score would suggest. Their fixtures now coming up are when we're going to really find out about them because they've got Blackburn away tomorrow evening. Blackburn aside, who are probably the antith- you know, the, the an- antithesis of Reading in that they have won a lot of games very well, including this Saturday, but they've also put in some good performances recently that haven't got the results they deserve. Coventry should be easier. And then it's Preston, Stoke, and Bournemouth, and then away to and then away to to Millwall. So they certainly seem to have been blessed by not an easy start to the season. You know, remember they they've already beaten uh, Watford. They went and got a point away at Middlesbrough. But I think Reading fans will admit that the the performances have to improve for this next upcoming run. But to pick up six points from those two games, they can't have done anything more. And um, and there's still a lot of quality running through the side. I mean, you know, we, we've spoken so much about Elise who came off the bench, but then mm. you've also got Rinomota and Josh Laurent as well, who's kind of gone a bit unnoticed, his form um, coming up from League One for Reading as well. Um, and it was, a, you know, interesting to see Estevez starting it right back, a player who we're led to believe, despite his, his teenage years, should be far too good for the championship. 
there's a lot to be excited about. Um, Puskas probably the one Reading kind of marksman who isn't really um, showing it at the moment. But when Mate and Jara in such good form, it doesn't really matter. Yeah, and defensively excellent as well. That they've faced the second fewest shots on target in the league. So they might be running a little hot on the attacking numbers. Defensively, the numbers are pretty good. They are restricting the opposition better than almost any other team in the league. QPR, by the way, have faced the fewest shots on target, which is very confusing to me. And I'm going to have to eat a lot of humble pie because uh, despite all the things I like about Mark Warburton and the way that his teams play football, I've always thought that he'd never had a side that was half decent defensively. And that was what quite often held his teams back. But, you know, albeit only early doors, QPR having faced the fewest shots on target, I think is quite notable. But Reading have faced the second fewest. Defensively, they've been very, very good. It's a solid structure where you have to give Paunovic uh, credit for that. You have to give a lot of credit to the centre-backs as well, Morrison and Moore, who've been fantastic. And yeah, I mean, as you said, it could barely have gone any better the first seven games. The next seven are almost all very, very tricky. Since 2004, 2005, no team has got more points than this in their first seven games. So no one's won seven out of seven. Brighton in 2015-16 and QPR in 2010-2011 matched this with 19 points. QPR were champions that year with 88 points. Brighton got 89 points that year, became third. Of course, when Reading, who hold the record for points in the championship season, when they got 106 points, they had 14 points through seven, five points fewer than this. So... They come up against Blackburn in midweek. That is a tasty fixture, isn't it? Because as you've mentioned there, Coventry uh, losing 4-0 to Blackburn this weekend. An early red card didn't help them. Blackburn have admittedly been fortunate to the extent that an opposition team having a man sent off in the first half against you can be considered fortunate or otherwise. They have had that twice now with Wickham uh, and now with Coventry. They've won those games at 5-0 and 4-0. So putting teams away when they sniff an opportunity. I think, George, we can all agree there's quite a lot to like about Blackburn at the moment, isn't there? They're, they're providing a lot of attacking fun in what is, as mentioned, a, a desperately dry division at the moment on that front. Yeah, I thought you were going to say a particularly hairy team after my tweet this morning, where I noticed that basically half the uh, Blackburn players either have top knots or kind of look like cavemen. Um, but clearly for Blackburn, things are looking very positive. And this was a very welcome return to a prolific um, stretch of form after the loss against Watford, which was very harsh on them. And, you know, it's 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 a positive for sure. And it's great to see Brereton um, really excelling. Good to see Harvey Elliott getting his first goal for them as well and just generally playing very well. But I think in the grand scheme of things, you have to basically draw a line through this game. Um, maybe more so from a Coventry perspective than a Blackburn perspective. Coventry down to 10 men uh, after 14 minutes in the game, uh, also giving away a penalty because Michael Rose clearly did kind of deliberately push um, for the foul. So it, it was the correct decision. No I'm afraid the, the cries of double jeopardy from Coventry fans uh, don't really apply here because um, it was clearly a, a deliberate attempt to prevent a, a goal-scoring um, opportunity. And Blackburn just completely dominated the whole game from then on. They had 24 shots to three. They looked dangerous pretty much every single time they went forward. Um, the attacking trio of, of Elliot Armstrong and Brereton was just so good. Uh, a big goal for for um, Sam Gallagher as well, somebody who doesn't score nearly enough goals and, and a big one for him. Uh, but as I say, I think for Coventry fans, for, for Mark Robbins, for the players, it's just a case of, right, these days are going to happen um, every so often where you're up against it 
straight away because of a a decision made by a defender which which has cost them the game mm. not worth getting too concerned about um you know the, the general run of form has been pretty poor but let's remember that they held a really decent Swansea side to a draw in midweek as well um they've got some tough games coming up they go to Borough next uh, and then of course it's lead, lead, league leaders Reading as we've mentioned um but just important to yeah just to, to not get too concerned but for Blackburn in in a league as you mentioned, which it feels like there are, there are, there are a few quality sides, you have to see Blackburn as being one of them. You have to see Tony Mowbray's side as being the one who now you feel like they've kind of added that little bit of star quality with players like Elliot. You've got Armstrong, who's quickly developing into one of the best forward players in the whole division. So maybe we should be less surprised. It seems bonkers to me that they're tenth. Um, you know, Luton are currently on two two points more in, in a higher place than Blackburn. It feels to me. Uh, that's a false position and, and that pretty soon we're going to be seeing them a lot higher. Well, let's see how they go tomorrow night against the defensively resolute Reading FC. That's going to be a, a really, really interesting game. Just, I, re- almost regardless of the result in that one, I'm interested to see what the balance of play looks like, like how that game will play out. I'm just thrilled. I think everyone is pretty thrilled to see Ben Brereton um, pick up essentially a hat-trick of assists on the weekend. He won the penalty, uh, which which was also the red card. He assisted Armstrong with a lovely little spin and pass. Uh, and he set up Harvey Elliott as well, that the team's fourth goal was magnificent with Holtby and Elliott playing two one-twos. Uh, a one-two-three. I don't know if you would call it that. But <laughs> that's basically what it was. It was really, really good stuff. And Brereton... You know, he, he has clearly not scored enough goals for this Blackburn side since joining for a, a hefty fee. You know, not a club Blackburn who who have had parachute payments for a long time. And so when they have spent big on players, Brereton and Gallagher, you know, relative to, to their turnover, they haven't always excelled to the extent that you kind of need those big transfer fee players to excel. But with Brereton and, and dare I say it, Gallagher, who's a young player as well, and we might see the same with him, but certainly with Brereton, you weren't paying for the first season. You weren't paying for the first 18 months. You're paying for, mm-hmm. um, for, for the development of a young player who has so many tools, so many good attributes, and who's always, you know, regardless of, of on-pitch stuff, as certainly at Forest was regarded as just like a brilliant character as well and the sort of, the sort of personality who would continue to thrive, continue to develop. So, you know, it's early days. And in terms of goal scoring, it, it's only three goals in a Blackburn shirt. Uh, but he's played 100 games now in the championship and he's 21 and a half. And that is absolutely insane. Yeah. Reminds me a little bit of Adam Armstrong, who we've spoken about before. Barely anyone has played more football than Adam Armstrong at his age or in his age group. So, you know, there's something to that. And uh, and the more confidence Brereton gets, he, he scored that goal against Watford in midweek, uh, the better he will be. So really exciting stuff and good to see Harvey Elliott as well. You know, Tyrese Dolan, we spoke about for a few weeks, didn't we? And he's now been been uh, rested or put on the bench with, with Elliot getting a chance. It's it's a good time to be a, a Blackburn fan. And that's the that's the game of midweek, isn't it? Blackburn against Reading. Cannot wait for that one. Another eye-catching win over the weekend, George, was Stoke 3, Brentford 2. Stoke went 3-0 up. Uh, and in the first half, to all intents and purposes, Brentford um, barely had a, a sniff, really, and, and were 2-0 down in the first half. Just, to, just a reminder that Stoke were bottom of the championship when Michael O'Neill took over. There's been... Huge amount of progress made, I think, by Michael O'Neill. And, and what's quite interesting is I, I'm, I've had more than one message from people whose football opinions I trust, who are not Stoke fans, watching Stoke win football matches in the last few weeks and messaging me to say, I, I can't quite work this out. I'm, I'm still not 100% sure <laughs> what Stoke are, specifically how good they are, whether they're even close to hitting their top gear yet or whether 
these performances and the wins that they've had are sort of repeatable and whether they could turn into a team that just grinds out win after win after win. But there's a lot of very, very good signs, aren't there? Yeah, there are. There are. I think even though the game finished 3-2 and Stoke scored three goals and conceded two, this is going to sound strange, but this was another win for the for the kind of the defensive setup of Stoke because mm. if you take the last half an hour out of the game, which is when Brentford scored their two, and you look at the game as kind of that 60 minutes where the, the game started level, <clears throat> despite Brentford having all the possession and having all the ball, they managed just three shots, uh, one of which was from about 35 yards um, from uh, from Canos. And when you look at the attacking players that Brentford had on the pitch in terms of, of Canos, the new lad Godos, Tony, the most informed striker in the league before this game, De Silva in midfield as well, to keep this Brentford side so blunt is is a massive testament to what O'Neill was doing. Mm. Now, Stoke scored, Stoke had five shots in that time and scored three. We can probably put that down to being not particularly repeatable. And so I'm not going to get too excited by the sudden ability to put three parts to defence that we obviously like a lot. And Thomas Frank is a very adept defensive coach, even though, as you mentioned, there was a shift in terms of both personnel and system that didn't really seem to work too well. Mm. And one of the goals was to, to take a massive deflection off Charlie Good as well. But this is, again, just a sign that O'Neill can take his side. The only time I've seen his Stoke team look defensively frail was in that 5-0 win against, uh, 5-0 defeat against Leeds last season, where we're now seeing that Leeds not only were one of the best teams in, in the championship, but were actually one of the best teams in the country, as we're seeing now in the Premier League. So... It, it's really impressive um, what they do. I think Tyrese Campbell is a player that we're going to have to start properly taking notice of. Does it feel a bit like he's been held, almost like held back a little bit in comparison to other young players across the division? I, I feel like I've wanted to see more of him time and time again. And I mean, he can't ignore him now, can he? Two, two goals and four assists in his last four games. Yeah, and, and the reason why he's been held back is maybe because they've had so many strikers on their books yeah. for the last 18 months of whom are taking up a fair chunk of their of their wage bill. Mm. But now he's making he's playing himself into an undroppable role for them. And how old is he? Is he 20 or 21? He's 20. He's not 21 until until just after Christmas. Wow. So um very quickly he's making it, you know, we we spoke about him as a player with massive potential. He's quite quickly proving that he is someone who is doing it now and doing it for a side where you know, they they don't get on the ball too often in the final third. You have to basically make the most of those of those chances. But then, generally playing against high lines, he has the pace to get in behind. He's clearly got the both the creative and goal scoring ability to use the ball well in in advanced positions. Um, you know, we we do our Friday night on Sky EFL ones to watch. I have a feeling this coming Friday, TC might be on the agenda. Oh, mate. The- We've just done Harry Suter and the uh, the Stoke fans were not uh, happy yeah. about that. They weren't happy about <laughs> that at all. They they thought they might be able to keep Suter under the radar uh, for a for a wee bit longer. Um but sadly they they can't because Suter again, you know, they did concede two goals, but he was strong defensively once more. I think I'm going to start calling Michael O'Neill Mr Intangible because you know what I just said before about how you can't always put your finger on it sometimes but you know there's a few there's a few things that you've touched on there which kind of go some way to explaining things but also a, a throwback from his time with Northern Ireland you just hear that people want to play for him his you know the the teams that he builds tend to have very good team spirit they tend to do quite well in adversity and you know they they they're just the sort of team that 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 tend to be 
as good or better than the sum of their parts. And if he can get Stoke to be that consistently, then they're going to be towards the top end of this division that, you know, that they'll certainly look a lot stronger, uh, a lot more robust than last season and uh, a lot better going forward. So uh, it's exciting. You mentioned the switch to three at the back that Thomas Frank went for this one. It's really difficult to know whether it was to match O'Neill's Stoke who play that sort of system or because he didn't trust one of Good and Sorensen to fill in for Janssen who's picked up an injury or a mixture of both, I guess. Um, either way, it didn't work at all. Uh, it didn't make them any more solid, as we saw. Good particularly had a really tough game in this one. Uh, he played Fletcher on side for the first goal. The second took that deflection off him. The third, Tyrese Campbell just stood him up and jinked inside him. And, you know, I would have liked to see De Silva put more of a foot in there. But even so, it was a tough one for Good. Sorensen, I think, was the one that actually got hooked at half time as he went back to 4 3 3. So by that time, it was kind of too late, wasn't it? And, and for Frank. He made the switch and it didn't work. So he has to hold his hands up, I think, here. Um, they created next to nothing in open play while they were playing that three at the back system. So not only did it not make them more solid, but it may also have harmed their attacking um, prowess. Good to see Force taking his goals really well. Bit of a headache for Frank that, given Tony's goal-scoring record as well this season and, and the general system that, that Brentford play, generally being 4-3-3. But to have someone like that, Force, coming up the, uh, off the bench with with, well, that goal-scoring ability it can only be a good thing. Uh, George Huddersfield won Preston 2. You were really excited about this one. What did you think of the game itself? Preston, uh, the away team of the season, getting another three points away from home. I mean, I built this one, didn't I? I called it on there to be a, to be a cracker on the Totally Football League show extra time, and it lived up to its billing. We had um, a game full of chances, of three goals, a sending off a team coming back from behind to win it. Um, a really, really good goal from Alan Brown. I mean, he scored twice, I know, but the second finish um, is a goal that I think it's one of those where when you see it once, you kind of think, yeah, right. But actually, the, the angle from the back to have the control um, to kind of hook it over his right shoulder with his left foot, with his with his wrong foot over the keeper um, who made a bizarre decision to come and try and claim the ball um, was really impressive. Uh, frustrating this one for Huddersfield because I think at 1-0 up um, at home to Preston, it felt like they were continuing their trend upwards and to finish the game not only with no points but also with Naby Saar being sent off with a straight red kind of brings them back down to earth with a bump. Um, but yeah, Preston... Don't necessarily get too many away wins. Uh, I'm sure Alex Neil will be chuffed that they've managed to come back from behind here and and beat a team who I still think are, are fairly decent. Well, by contrast to Thomas Frank, Alex Neil gets credit for a tactical switch. Um, I'm not 100% sure. We, we were told a Sunday scouting report by uh, Ollie, who's a Preston fan, that he, he basically made the decision to switch formation after seeing the team sheets heading in. But Huddersfield went 3-5-2, having generally been 4-3-3 this season. And Neil, who's Preston, and normally 4-2-3-1, and who I think would have had Hughes at left back and Rafferty at right back in a four, reacted to that and ended up using Alan Brown and his insane versatility as a right wing back uh, to, to help deal with Toffolo. Rafferty at left back and Hughes tucking inside to play left centre back. He went 3-5-2 as well. So it was it's cool to see that, that sort of tactical 
reaction, I guess. And whether or not that was the reason for Preston winning, I'm not sure you would say that. I think actually they just came on quite strong in the second half. And, you know, it was it was two goals in three minutes, wasn't it? It was a, it was a tight, even game. But, you know, unlike Frank, whose change of system kind of discombobulated his Brentford side and, and didn't work uh, on either end of the pitch for them. For Preston, it, potentially it helped them maintain a foothold in this game where otherwise they might have been caught a little bit cold. And, uh, you know, as always, you, you kind of got to shout out player versatility here because it allows managers to do that. Alan Brown, obviously the, the poster boy for that for Preston, but Rafferty being able to fin at, uh, fill in at left back despite being naturally right-footed, that makes a big difference as well. Hughes being able to, to slip inside and play centre-back as well. It, it was great stuff. And we haven't talked about the name on most Preston fans' lips, Mr. Rees up top, who signed from Denmark. We didn't know particularly what to expect from him. We heard some quite good things uh, about him. I wasn't sure whether he was going to be a bit of a Simon McKinnock or a bit more of a Jordan Hugel uh, because he's in that sort of mould. He's He's got a presence. He's a, he's a strong kid. He's a big guy. And certainly this week, he has come to the fore. Really eye-catching display against QPR in midweek. Um, really good display here against Huddersfield. He, he was kind of relentless. He's running the channels. He was providing a physical presence. He's got some quality on the ball by the looks of things as well. Hit the bar late on and there's a lot of excitement. I saw someone say this is the first time in, I think I think Neil's been there for two and a half years now. And, and someone basically saying this is the first time he's had a proper striker. Now that might be a little bit harsh, but it's clearly it's always been the headline hasn't it for Preston when you've when we've analyzed them it's like actually this is a really good team this is a team that we that we think is is pretty good in all departments and yet doesn't quite seem to ever reach the very top level maybe maybe this could be the missing piece Reese's pieces uh, had a very very good performance <laughs> in this one I just want to before we move on shout out Huddersfield Journal for the examiner Stephen Chicken friend of the pod as well he, he joined us on a podcast last year he along with so many others, and not just in Huddersfield, but of course across the whole country, we've seen an amazing um, gathering together of people to help to raise money and provide support, people supporting people. Stephen Chicken, as, as much as anyone else, I think, he tweeted that if if, if people could raise £2,500 for the local uh, Huddersfield Food Bank, he would do his pre-match Facebook Live topless. And if it got to 3000 he'd work the whole first half shirtless, Three and a half thousand for the full ninety <laughs> and post match press. Well, George, so far eleven thousand pounds raised. Uh, thanks, well boosted thanks to a big donation from Fraser Campbell, who scored in this game. And Stephen Chicken did the whole game, reported on this whole game from the stadium with his top off. Um, absolutely brilliant. I, I'm, I'm, I'm aware, and as I've said, there's been some incredible fundraising across the whole country this week. But I just wanted to shout out Stephen, also our friends at, at Wizards of Drivel, Stoke City podcast. They've done some incredible stuff. I don't mean to ignore anyone by not mentioning it, but well done, Steve. Well done, the Wizards. And keep going, everyone, because it's uh, it's fantastic. And as we know, it's it's much needed as well. But it was a hell of a yeah. it was a hell of a sight, wasn't it, Stephen? Stephen doing all that topless. Well done, him. What did you make of the Norwich-Wickham game this weekend? Norwich winning 2-1 with a late Vrancic free kick. That doesn't necessarily tell the whole story of this one, though, does it? Well, they're, they're making it difficult for themselves, Norwich, aren't they? Um, where it's, it's a lot of late goals. It's a lot of fairly good um, attacking play without much of a kind of cutting edge. Um, it's, it's kind of different to what we saw with Norwich um, a couple of years ago. I mean, the build-up play is still very good, but they were so clinical. I mean, Timo Puki was, you know, 
ran very, very hot basically for a whole season. Now they're, they're relying on Vrancic, well, at least to their last couple, to get the goal to win it. I mean, you look at the shot map, um, Norwich's shot map against Wickham, they took 25 shots, all of which were basically from pretty good good areas. Um, Wickham have to find a way to score, which isn't Scott Cashkit profiting from um, you know his own pressing and forcing opposition defences into mistakes. Um, they did create a bit more than we've seen previously. Yeah. Um, you know, they had their chances at one all to, to get ahead. Um, that's not to say that, that Norwich weren't good value for their win, but certainly it, it could have been very different in, in a way that we saw Wickham often do last season, including, you know, in, in many ways, this game kind of reminded me of, of the playoff final, which we saw Wickham win, where even at one all, it was quite clear who the dominant side was in terms of chances and possession, but you always felt like Wickham could possibly, 100%. Um, if they took one of their chances, could have nicked it. Um, a pretty stupid red card for Adam Ida late on takes a bit of the gloss off for Norwich. I'm not really sure what he was doing, um, deciding to kind of push Joe Jacobson in the face whilst getting up from from a tackle in the 93rd minute. Um, but I, I still think I think we we are on the verge of seeing Norwich come good. It's three wins in a row. They haven't necessarily been um convincing in, in any of them. They've won all three by by kind of marginal score lines against Rotherham and Wickham and Birmingham. Rotherham and Wickham, the two sides I mentioned with Reading being, you know, who certainly in terms of score lines have put themselves much, much further away. But I would say that Norwich's performances themselves have been of, of a different level in terms of, of, of the game state. So a couple of really tricky games coming up. Um the Brentford match tomorrow night is a good gonna be a good barometer for both sides to see where they are. Um, but for Wickham, it's 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 feeling there's definitely positives to take out of this, given the the quality of the opposition. But at the same time, it, it's hard. You know, Gareth Ainsworth keeps saying he can feel the wind is coming. It does feel like they're going to need a slice of luck to get that win. But maybe they are due it. Well, they are due it, aren't they? Because whatever we spoke about last week with the disallowed uh, Olympic goal from Joe Jacobson. I don't think there's any yeah. argument this week that the free kick that Vranchett scored should not have been a free kick. And I'm a bit conflicted here because morally uh, I'm against it, but aesthetically it looked so good. I'm, I'm Put it this way, I'm not disappointed that I've seen Vranchett put that free kick in the top corner because, Jesus, it was nice. You're absolutely right about the way Wickham played and it, it was a very pleasant surprise, presumably not for Norwich and not for Daniel Farker, but they went ahead so early in this game and it, and it, was, a, it was a goal that looked... Quite simple, Buendia through for Puki, good finish. And there was a moment where I thought, you know, actually Norwich could really pick them off here. They could pick them apart. And it was the complete opposite. For, for the next hour, Wickham looked like they had Norwich's number to a certain extent. They certainly caused them a lot more problems than I, I think anyone would have expected and, and performed very, very well. So they certainly deserved a point from that game at the very least. Um, but it, it was a beautiful free kick from Vrancic. I mean, Norwich's points this, this season, George, uh, winner on opening day against Huddersfield, 81st minute, equaliser against Preston's second game, 85th minute. And then the last three wins, 90th minute, Hugh Gill, 87th minute Vrancic, 90 minute Vrancic. It's, it's amazing. And, and as you said, two mm. years ago, I think I worked out this weekend, in 12 of their 46 games, they scored a goal after the 80th minute that either won wow. or won the game or drew or drew the game for them. That's over a quarter of games in the season. It's absolutely unbelievable. And, um, you know, yeah. potentially the way that they play, 
leads to opposition getting more tired. I, I don't know. It's a really interesting one. But they seem to manage those situations so much better than other teams. You know when there are so many teams who struggle to score winning goals or equalizing goals when they're behind. And generally the, the chat is they need a plan B. Like they need something different because it doesn't work all the way through the game and teams work them out. It's almost the opposite for Norwich. Like they are the team whose plan A actually they really, really hammer it and it tends to bear fruit eventually. And that's kind of an interesting one. Um, Sheffield Wednesday, nil Luton won the last game. We're going to go in depth uh, on the championship this weekend. Uh, Luton's worst performance of the season midweek and probably potentially their best performance of the season here uh, against Sheffield Wednesday. Another manager mixing it up and going three at the back. Nathan Jones this time uh, went three at the back. And unlike Thomas Frank, uh, it really worked. Lockyer came in to make his, uh, I think it was his first league start, alongside Pearson and Bradley. They kept that clean sheet. They obviously dealt with with the the uh, physical presence of Patterson fairly well there and the movement of Marriott. Um, and in midfield, you had Dewsbury Hall and Morell both making their first league starts for Luton. So a new look central midfield. Both of those two sort of sitting, offering circulating, tackling, doing really well in the midfield battle with, with Ruddock and Panzu breaking forward to, to great effect from midfield positions, scoring a nice goal and offering a, a real goal threat. So really positive signs uh, for Luton after such a poor result and performance in midweek. And I guess a, mm. um, a feather in the cap for Nathan Jones as well, whose tactical switch paid off here. The game plan worked and the game plan kind of helped get them the win here. RIP the diamond. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. It um it was interesting Nathan Jones's post match interview. I mean his post match interviews normally are pretty interesting. Um then they're, they're not normally what you'd expect. But he was he wasn't negative, but he wasn't necessarily all that positive either. He kind of lamented a couple of missed opportunities from his side. He seemed to kind of imply that he felt Luton had been unlucky so far this season by saying, you know, we restrict the opposition to, to two chances and they normally take one. I'm not sure that's that's really necessarily fair. But um, yeah, it was just interesting to see a guy who had gone to Hillsborough um, and got a result, a really big win, and not being kind of effusive in his praise. I wonder if he... Sheffield Wednesday, winless in 10 at home. So maybe it's the easiest place to go. Yeah, that's true. That is true. I mean, it was an absolutely horrific tackle from Yus van Aken um, for the red cards. And I don't think anyone can have any complaints about that. Great to see um, Pelly Ruddick and Panzu getting on the score sheet. Mm. He maybe could have scored earlier on as well. Um, Mate, nice to and, see your you know, old favourite Danny Hilton as well, leading the line in the absence of I Collins. Know. There'd been concerns that without Collins, they really were quite sort of uh, grim going forward, I guess. Unlikely to to finish the chances to the same extent. Hilton almost got his first ever championship goal. Uh, an amazing clearance off the line after like 20 seconds, mm. but he led the line really well and uh, and did very well, uh, as I said, to, to fill in uh, for Collins. I, I want to talk about Sheffield Wednesday because uh, Nancy Frostick, who covers the club for our sponsors, The Athletic, has written a really good piece on, on Sheffield Wednesday, on, on where they're at and what's to come. They've got a big, big week coming up. Rotherham and Wickham, uh, on the fixture list for Sheffield Wednesday. Of course, they're on minus four points. Um, they are eight points from safety at the moment. And I enjoyed this piece, George, because I have to admit, I know you were quite positive about them last week, but I haven't really known what to say about Sheffield Wednesday yet because they had eight points from five games when we spoke this time last week. Two home defeats yeah. later, it's eight points from seven games. Um, in their wins this season, they've looked great. In their defeats, they've looked miserable. 
and I thought Nancy sort of detailed some of the issues really well in 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 this piece. Um, what did you glean from it? Yeah, they are. I, I don't envy Nancy's job here because they are one of the worst teams to work out. And Gary <laughs> Monk himself, I'd say, is one of the um, most difficult managers to really um, kind of get to grips with. Um, so, because it does feel like they go on, you know, of all the teams in the league, and this isn't just this season, they have, well, as shown by last season, where they were in the top three about a few months in and then were basically one of the worst teams. They have massive, massive highs and, and massive downs. Um, I think she talks about the kind of difficulty in terms of building their midfield. Um, the options to play alongside Barry Bannon um, has been an issue for them for a long time. Um, I mean, there's there's a lot to kind of get to grips with with the piece. And, and Nancy is a writer whose who's stuff in the Athletic has always been very, very good. Yeah, I, I certainly echo that I mean it still feels like they're trying to find the the right way to go about things with the personnel that they have uh, the right way to create chances consistently especially and there are quite a few players that joined late in the window of course Patterson and Marriott and Flint uh, among them so it's possible that that things could get better could click as they become more and more comfortable read that article by Nancy uh, on the athletic site if you're a Sheffield Wednesday fan or if you're interested in how they're shaping up ahead of this huge week games against Rotherham uh, and Wickham I've no doubt we'll be talking about Sheffield Wednesday next Monday and I have no idea whether we're going to be talking about them positively or negatively if you know what I mean because <laughs> I can't really call how well they will play and what sort of results they'll pick up this week and um, theathletic.co.uk forward slash ntt20 if you're not a subscriber of the athletic but you'd like to check it out you can get a seven day free trial you'll also get 50 percent off your annual subscription so it's about two quid 50 a month and yeah head to theathletic.co.uk forward slash ntt20 there is still so much good stuff on site uh, at the moment before we move on to, to league one george just to mention the new manager in the championship is valerian ismail he's the new manager at barnsley quite a lot of fans not liking the strategy employed by the Barnsley board when it comes to hiring managers, but quite a lot of, of fans quite excited as well. So it's an interesting one to talk about. The third hire in a row after Daniel Stendhal and Gerhard Struber uh, from abroad, you know, managers that fans won't recognise, that we can't claim to know loads about. But, you know, as previously, it looks like they're recruiting for a style, for continuity, for, for the players that they have and the sort of players that they want to buy. That's the sort of thing that we like to see, right? Rather than lurching from style to style or profile yeah. to profile uh, in, in managerial I mean, appointments. I, I find it like, baffling that Barnsley fans, any Barnsley fan can take an issue with the way that their club has recruited managers. In Stendhal, you had a guy who took them up from League One and then his departure was met with, you know, general um, annoyance and anger from the fans, which shows the job that he did and the esteem he was held in. Gerhard Struber, who came in and then managed to keep them up somehow and has now been taken on with fans, again, upset and angry that he will no longer be manager of the club. So you've got two managers who've been popular, both taken from abroad, both showing that the process put in place by Barnsley in order to hire managers has been a successful one. So for what possible reason could you take a look at the next one in that line and say, oh, not another one of these guys, given the success of the other two? I find it so weird. His, you know, his um, his calibre as both a player and a coach is high. He played for Bayern Munich. He's managed in the Bundesliga. 
Um, he managed a Lask side, who's, and he was attributed very, very well for the con- con- continuity of the manager he took over from and the style of play he implemented. I think it's a coup, and I, and I find it really weird that any Barnsley fan could um, could see it as anything otherwise. I'm excited to see how he gets on. Got a bit of work to do. Barnsley without a win so far, four draws uh, and three defeats. Just, just lastly, George, on Friday night, we mentioned that on Sky we talked about Harry Suter. Uh, he was excellent again uh, on Friday <laughs> night. We we watched the Derby Forest game, didn't we? A one-all draw didn't did not go the way that I thought it would go. I hold my hands up for that. Forest did not run away with it at all. Derby I thought were quite impressive, uh, as were the performances of, of a fair few of our new pals on the Fan Slide app. Yeah, I mean, you should mention as well, for those who don't listen to the betting show, that for the second week in a row, um, I was right with my Friday night pick with the draw. Well so done. people should listen to that. Um, but yeah, it was great to to play fan slides uh, alongside our um, some of our listeners. We had, I think, nearly 200 people mm. in the game on um, Friday night. Everybody, again, getting in touch, saying how much they enjoyed it. The chat room was very lively with people's telling us and saying thanks for introducing them and um, we're looking forward to playing again on friday night uh, annoyingly the winner i think you came about what was it 40th or 20th or yep. something i came about 60th yeah i mean we we, so you be- we started you with again. this we started with this oh george is really good at the game anyone but Alec must win but i finished above you the last two times we've played so maybe you're not all that yep. after all yeah i agree um <laughs> the winner was Joe, who actually is the founder of Fanslide. So that was um, something, I mean, it's two weeks in now. And as far as I'm aware, no, not the top 20 um, listener. Um, well, unless Joe himself is listening, um, no one has has won it yet. So we need to change that on Friday night for um, for Coventry against Reading. Joe is very kindly as well said he's rolling his winnings into Friday's pot. So the pot is 150 quid on Friday. It's completely free to enter 18 plus and also just get your mates involved as well that's the other thing we kind of forgot to say um we're enjoying playing with you guys i think the the more of your friends and people that you know playing the better it should be a really good game on friday fingers crossed we get more people playing as well i'm absolutely loving it so just recommend that you do download the fan slide app and we'll be there again in the green room on friday playing alongside Joe also donated £50 of his winnings uh, to the local food bank as well. So fair play to him. A a lot of people enjoying it. A lot of people getting better week on week. Join us uh, on the Fanslide app. It's free to play uh, with £150 prize pot uh, this Friday on the Coventry Reading game. Uh, In League One, George, we've got Michael Appleton's Lincoln City top of the pile. They beat Ipswich 1-0 on the weekend. We've got to talk about penalties with, with Lincoln. They've had six in their eight league games so far. Now, general consensus is this is not a repeatable trait. Um, and yet they do have the sort of players, George, that are the sort of players that do tempt defenders into making bad tackles or sometimes, as might have been the case on the weekend, buy penalties, by which we mean con the referee into giving them. Yeah, I got a, a DM on Twitter on Wednesday at 12.35 from a man called Julian Soons, J. Soons, 1974. George, bet of the weekend. Lincoln City to win a penalty versus Ipswich Town, 4-1. to one. Fantastic pace in the Lincoln City team at the moment. Most penalties awarded in the league. Defenders can't cope. <laughs> there you go. He's a genius. He Julian is a genius. <laughs> he was spot on. And it is true. They are a side full of runners and full of players with pace to burn. And we saw that again um, on Saturday 
as you mentioned, it's, it's not sustainable. Um, I won't be piling into the four to one every weekend, I must say, um, because the more penalties they win, the the more a, a run without any is probably due. Mm. Um, but yeah, they're certainly a side who who have maybe the more cum- cumbersome defenders slightly on their back foot and slightly concerned when they're running at pace towards the goal. Um, specifically the, Brennan Johnson, who looks specifically Brennan absolutely Johnson. electric. Um, mm. He could have had a goal in this game as well with a really nice move. Him and George Grant look like they are combining very well, potentially not that surprising, although they're, they're not in the same age group. They're both obviously Nottingham Forest bred, if you will. Johnson on loan from Forest Grant came through the academy there as well. I'm kind of torn. You know, we, talk, we talked about Reading earlier and there has to be a, a part of these discussions about whether the team at the top of the table, we think, will remain at the top of the table, will challenge for automatic promotion. And it's a tough one with Lincoln because there's so much like Reading to be really impressed with, so much to be excited about in the way that they're playing. Um, pleasantly surprised, certainly by their start to the season, even though we were quite excited pre-season about some development that they were making under Appleton. I'm sort of torn between thinking that this youngish side get better and better as the season goes on and also thinking that potentially the, the other side of that coin is that they, they're the sort of side that I could see suffering a dip in form and tasting the other side of, of this, maybe a bit of luck if you call it that with the penalties and, and during a long season, maybe just drifting away as other teams are, are potentially more, more robust. I, I mean, I guess we'll find out, but I'm interested to know what your thoughts are on, on Lincoln and sustainability of this, uh, of this good run at the moment. Yeah, the, the one thing that I would say that slightly confuses me is that everything I know about Michael Appleton as a coach, everything that we've heard him say publicly as well in the last couple of months, all points towards changing the style, changing the means of playing. And, and certainly there are far fewer long balls we're seeing at the moment. But this was another game in which Lincoln were very, very happy just to concede possession to the opposition, very happy to sit off, very happy to kind of get set into their low block and try and use the pace with the with the space in behind to run on. You know, they had, I think it was uh, 40, 45% possession. Um, Ipswich attempted 642 passes to Lincoln's 380. This is very different to kind of the high pressing football we saw at Oxford, very different to the kind of pass volume as well. So I'm not really sure what to make of that because I have a feeling it's not by design. Knowing the way that Appleton likes his teams to play, seeing the kind of player that he's brought in. Mm. It, it's all a bit of a surprise. And that maybe rings some alarm bells in my head that even though Lincoln are getting the results they want, they are failing to maybe control the games in the way that Appleton would like his teams to. Um, that's not to also say that the way they're playing certainly does suit certain players, Johnson being one of them, where he's going to much rather get the ball 40 yards from goal with two defenders to beat rather than getting the ball consistently 20 yards from goal with five, with, you know, a mm. bank of five in front of him. Um, so there is maybe some positivity there, <laughs> but it's just a bit confusing. In summary, we don't really know. Um... In summary, in summary, <laughs> a Michael Appleton side against a Paul Lambert side, yeah, you would think, looking at all like the passing stats and metrics, you'd think it would be the other way around, I would say. I think it's fair to say they were good for the win, despite the, yeah. the, the way no, no, that it course. came about, despite the the slightly, uh, well, the controversial uh, penalty. Uh, outside of, of Johnson and Grant, by the way, um, I wanted to mention Harry Anderson and, and Timothy Ayoma, who's on loan from Spurs, forming a nice partnership down Lincoln's right side as well. Anderson looks much improved as well um, from, from previous Anderson 
performances in a Lincolnshire. And we said last Monday we'd learn a lot about Ipswich from games against Doncaster and, and Lincoln. Uh, four one defeat, one nil defeat. Uh, Paul Lambert's not taking it very well. Watch this space, I guess. You know, once things started to slide last season, uh, they kept sliding, didn't they? And Lambert didn't often help himself by what he said publicly uh, after games. And that was certainly the case this weekend where Lambert's lambasting of the referee um, didn't go down well at all with the Ipswich fans who thought he was basically making excuses, uh, drawing attention to himself in a, in a negative way. And yeah, so those old feelings potentially seeping back in, um, uh, you know, they, mm. they need to get a few good results now. Uh, Hull lost 1-2 to Peterborough. That's the worst sentence I've ever said on, on the podcast. Uh, Peterborough beat Hull 2-1. <laughs> George, you, you thought Posh would win this game. I'm not sure you necessarily thought it would be a, a come-from-behind win sealed by a a deflected Siriki Dembele strike, but uh, five wins... I mean, it would have been incredible foresight if I had thought it was going to be that. Well, we know he takes a lot of pot shots, um, but, but five, does, yeah. five wins in a row uh, for Peterborough United. Yeah, really impressive. Uh, and again, I think all the more impressive because they had to come back from behind. He may not have scored as I anticipated, but Joe Ward's performance again was oh, so yeah. impressive. Um, both the assists. I mean, the... I don't really know what you call it, but the, the way that he spanned the defender for the second goal and the pace he used to, to burn past, I think it was Elder, um, was, yeah, really, really good. Um, and the, the cross for Johnson and Clark Harris is first. I mean, it, it feels like he's very quickly, as you kind of pointed out last week, the change of system, um, albeit they kind of look like they're back to their kind of three at the back-ish. He keeps mixing it up. Saturday. And I think Ward is the player yeah. that allows him to do that. Exactly, because he's so he's so capable at any you know anywhere down the right hand flat right hand side. But it feels like Ward's gone from being not necessarily a weak link, but certainly not one of the best players that Peterborough have got to suddenly being one of their key attacking outlets, um, which is which is a, a massive positive for them. Um, as we said with Hull, even though they did, um, I think they can feel hard done by here possibly for for losing this game um, on the balance of play. Mm. Um, they did restrict Posh to, to pretty few chances um, and were obviously undone by a deflected shot. Tom Eves went very, very close late on to level it up. Um, I'm sure Grant McCann won't be too reactive to this defeat. Um, it was just one of those that could have gone either way and they've ended up on the receiving end. But my negativity maybe in the betting show about Hull, despite the bet being a winner, um, I don't think was really carried through in terms of the way that they played. And what did you make of the game at the Stadium of Light? Sunderland 1, Portsmouth 3. Very interesting. Yeah, well, expand. Uh, well, I mean, is it still is Jacket still out? Like, are we still saying that he needs to, like, to be sacked in order to let P- Portsmouth progress? Like, I, I, I found, and I've said it enough times, but I found this whole Kenny Jacket out thing one of the most perplexing um, narratives in the EFL for a long time because fairly consistently for 12 months now they have picked up more points than most teams in the division and yet again here they came up against the best side in the league so far they came up against a side who don't lose many games at home and they did a job on them it it may not be um the slickest most exciting brand of football but when you're scoring three goals against a team who don't concede many goals i don't think you can really criticize um they are fifth in the league at the moment they've dropped points at times this season they quite clearly shouldn't have dropped but in those games their performances were half decent I think they've, they've thrown in one dub performance so far against MK which they still ended up winning the game um, just yeah more respect for Jacket 
it might be easier to say now on the back of that win, but I've banged that drum for a long time. I, I find it totally bizarre. Um, this is a, a club in Portsmouth who need to get out of this league. And in the last 12 months, they have been consistently the team who have collected the most points in the league. So chopping that up now to bring someone else in just doesn't make any sense. Well, it was a great day for them, wasn't, wasn't it? And a very well-deserved win. Marcus Harness continues to dazzle. He scored that hat-trick against Burton the other day. In this game, he played through the middle, really, in a, in a 4-4-2 alongside John Marquis, but with that sort of free role that we've seen Siriki Dembele have at times uh, in this Peter side. And it's kind of a cool thing to see and a little bit new. That's not to say that we haven't seen skillful, quick attacking players playing up front. But, you know, in recent years, it's probably been a move away from that. And, and these are the sorts of guys that tend to play out wide or, or maybe as a number 10. Um, but Harness absolutely thriving in the same way that Dembele did. And I wonder whether we might see more of this, you know, this mm. profile of player playing through the middle or just, just buzzing off a, a bigger striker. They obviously don't stay particularly central. They drift all over, but it, it really has worked for those two. Anyway, Harness has clearly got a really good idea of where to find space. He's got excellent movement. He can run in behind and he's got the pace to do that. Um, but obviously, because he's he's grown up as a player playing behind the front man, you know, he, he's, he's more used to dropping in as well and, and linking play. He, he seems to play the right pass. He can play with both feet. We've seen him score with his left and his right um, plenty of times over the last year or so. Uh, and he linked up really well with Marquis, didn't he? But, but not just Marquis. Williams and Jacobs, who are playing right midfield, left midfield, crucial to the way that uh, Portsmouth rather pressed crucial to the way that they attacked uh, and especially in transition this was an energetic uh, Portsmouth performance they were they were too much for for a Sunderland side that hadn't conceded in open goal yet this season so um in open play in open play sorry Harness was excellent <laughs> Jacobs as well I think worth flagging up he, he's one of those players Michael Jacobs he's, he's been around for a while he's one of those players who who doesn't stand out at times and doesn't get a huge amount of credit at times because he's the opposite of a highlights player, I would say, Michael Jacobs. He's a player that takes up good positions, makes good decisions, uh, has a very good strike on him. And I think for the first goal here, if you watch it back, you'll see his sort of quality. He's obviously playing off the left. Harness, as, as we've said, has that free role. And you can see that he drags Willis all the way inside from the left side, inside to the centre of the pitch. And Harness just jogs forward and drifts into the into the space created by that. Jacobs receives the pass from out wide, turns, slips in Harness. And, and it looks like a really simple goal, but it's great play from Jacobs. And, and, uh, and, and he deserves a lot of credit for that goal and for some good performances recently. Other Elsewhere in, in League One, George, we had a big win for Crew, didn't we, at Doncaster. An eye-catching result, this one, in a game that was, was pretty tight. Uh, and actually a bit of a grind, which, which we haven't seen too much from, from either of these teams, I'd say. Two teams mm. we've enjoyed watching this season. Crew took the win, thanks to Harry Pickering. Yeah, Crew, another side who have kind of changed their style a bit. They're, they're another team who are very low in the list of, of possession percentage this season despite being a side last season who we often saw controlling the game um but again it was just a little bit of quality from both Kirk and Pickering I mean how often do we say that um which ended up getting them the win a um, lot the two the yeah uh, a really nice finish from Kirk it was bizarre how similar the Kirk and Sims goals were mm. within three minutes of each other um but as you said last week Josh Sims a very very early on looks like he's maybe a little bit too good for this league he's showing some real quality um, on that left-hand side, which will be a big help for them. But it was, yeah, Pickering free kick that settled the game. Uh, a, a big 
result and a big um, one for David Artel to get their first away win. Um, again, I've, I've said it before that they're a team that I think are going to be far better than maybe some others uh, expect them to be. Um, but, you know, Donny have had a fantastic start to the season and this maybe is, is one of those results which could go unnoticed by some, but probably in the grand scheme of things, it's one of the, the most significant, I would say, in terms of one team going away to another, playing so well and managing to pull off, a, a, you know, an away win and get, getting the three points. I feel like Crewe and Huddersfield Town are competing at the moment to score the sort of nicest goals in the EFL, just aesthetically, if you know what I mean. doesn't mean they're the best attacking teams, but if you were to rank every goal scored out of 10, I feel like Crewe right up there. Great quality of goal that they scored there first was another lovely counter-attack. Um, brilliant from Ainley, who drove forward through the middle. And, and you see so many of these opportunities as a fan, it can really frustrate you when they don't work. When you've got, let's say, a four on three, some players who drive through the middle play the ball out wide too early and it almost sort of slows down the attack because you haven't drawn a man uh, before playing the pass. Some players hold on to it too long and end up running out of options or getting tackled or making the wrong decision. But Ainley got it spot on. He drew the man perfectly and then played it to Kirk. Had exactly the best time and Kirk's finish with ex- was excellent. Northampton nil, Charlton two. Charlton have won three in a row. They haven't conceded in six hours of, of football. Uh, Ryan Innes mm. uh, continuing to impress after he joined the club. He was a, a, a threat from set pieces as we knew he would be. And I just thought it was interesting that a game against Northampton, known for being physical, direct, Bowie rested from the start. Anyway, Ben Watson and Darren Prattley and Shinny as well uh, from the previous game. And I find that interesting because generally there's a sort of feeling that in those sorts of games against those sorts of teams, you know, old school throwback, gritty games on a bad pitch, you need experience, you need players who have been there and done it. And in Prattley and Watson, that's what Charlton have, but they they were rested for this game. Prattley did come on and, and scored the goal, of course, but I thought that was an interesting choice from Boyer and clearly worked. He He wasn't that excited about the win, just said the most important thing, is that it's another clean sheet. I don't care what the game looked like. We came here, tough conditions, bobbly pitch, wind blowing a gale and got three points. Yeah. Um, and it was a really nice uh, pass from the keeper, Amos, to Doughty, wasn't it? Really making the most really of nice. extreme pace of, uh, of, of I think Doughty. I think Doughty's got to keep that sock on his head for the foreseeable, hasn't he? The Smurf hat, yeah. I'd like <laughs> yeah. him to. I'd like him to. Um, tell me about uh, Rochdale beating Shrewsbury. Because Dale have picked up some some pretty impressive wins recently. Um, I feel like yeah. it's almost like the headline for this one is Shrewsbury fans being really, really bored of what's happening there. But credit to to Brian Barry Murphy as well. Yeah, I, I think we've got to call this the the possession podcast because again, my point here comes back to that. I, I don't know if Brian Barry Murphy listens to the pod, but having given him credit last week for finding a different way to win, I mean, this was again totally different. Um, you know, being two 0 up after 36 minutes does mean that you know game state is going to dictate a certain team has the ball more often than the other. 33% possession, Rochdale. You know, after all that time of, of kind of instructing his his uh, his back line to, to keep the ball and to keep it deep, he's just he's torn it up. He's he's obviously <laughs> thought to himself, you know what, I'm I'm done with losing games of football, and um, and this was just very very different again. Um, Credit to them. Two really nice goals as well from Rathbone and Newby. Um, and they had to hold firm in the second half where, you know, they were on the receiving end of, of, of you know, not far off an onslaught from a Shrewsbury side trying to, to get back into the game. Um, Charlie Daniels seems to have been the, you know, the positive. He got an assist on his on debut. Um, a player who, if he's over his injury troubles, should be a really nice yeah. signing for, for Shrewsbury, you'd think. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, with Shrewsbury and Ricketts, it's kind of the opposite where he doesn't seem to have found a way to win. He doesn't seem to have found a way to get a, a good tune out of his side. And you wonder if in this kind of the infancy of this season, is 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 Ricketts one of the guys who we're looking at at the moment as being maybe under a little bit of pressure to get it right? Although I, I would caveat that by saying it's probably unlikely we're going to see that many sackings from League One and League Two this season due to the financial issues, mm. due to how much it generally costs clubs to make that decision. In which case, you know, guy, I mean, he's already had a fair amount of time to try and get it right, but guys like Ricketts wow. are going to afforded that to you know more than maybe they would do normally Sam Ricketts uh, League One record since he was appointed Shrewsbury manager he's had 66 games so it's about a season and a half 17 wins 24 draws and 25 defeats most notably I think most negatively uh, 63 goals in 66 games less than a goal per game 81 conceded is not horrendous uh, it's not bad uh, and 75 points in 66 1.14 per game. So that's a sort of, well, it's basically a 50-point season, isn't it? Um, no more than that. So you can see where the concerns from Shrewsbury fans come from. In fact, scrap it. Let's not call them concerns. You can see where the the dismay from Shrewsbury fans is coming from. Um, last season, they played a pretty ugly style and didn't score very many uh, goals. This season, they were told that they were switching up the style and there's evidence that they have switched up the style, but it hasn't made them any more prolific when it comes to creating chances or taking chances so it, it's almost like you know you're sort of shifting the chairs around in the titanic like you you, 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 <laughs> you you're, you're making decisions to try and fix a problem but not really getting anywhere close to fixing it so the the, the question is at this stage i think are there signs that things could turn around quickly for the better uh, and if not what else what, you know what else is a remit for a manager and for a manager at a club like shrewsbury is Ricketts potentially developing young players? Is he bringing players on to to a large extent that could help the club in the future? That could be a real, you know, a real positive. Again, I think Shrewsbury fans would look at the squad so far and say, not particularly, not really. And I'm finding it quite hard to argue. So he is under pressure, sadly, Sam Ricketts. And uh, when you lose to to a Rochdale side who are expected to be down there in a league with four relegation places, where mm. you know you, you're looking around you, there are some some quite good teams in the league as well. Um, you know, the pressure mounts pretty, pretty quickly, I think. Uh, we also had wins for, for Blackpool. 1-0 uh, against MK Dons, a poor game. But for Blackpool, I think the clean sheet, really important. Um, and for Fleetwood, who beat Gillingham 2-0. Again, it's, it's not one to get carried away with here. It, it was a, a, another fairly poor game. Gillingham hit the post twice, or the bar and the post. Um, the woodwork, I should say. Not that it's made of wood anymore. Uh, twice before Fleet, <laughs> before Fleetwood went ahead. And then a classic Madden poachers finish and Evans towards the end to seal it, a 2-0 win. But it was, you know, I wouldn't say they had necessarily the the better of this game. The one thing I wanted to say about Fleetwood, because we haven't spoken about them much this season. They haven't been as, as good as we thought they would be. And I think we what one thing we probably missed, my feeling pre-season was, why would Fleetwood be much worse than they were last season when they were a, a playoff side? Um, they had a lot of low knees, actually. And I think looking at looking at this season so far, trying to replace a lot of those low knees. They, they actually had quite a lot of gaps to fill in the squad where other teams around them maybe had fewer. And I think that probably contributed to a slow start. But I think we can expect them to improve here. Uh, from now, they brought in Callum Connolly again uh, on loan and Charlie Mulgrew. They signed on deadline day and they started at centre-back in this game. Tom Edwards on loan from Stoke. 
Uh, Stoke obviously happy with how Fleetwood uh, brought on Harry Suter when he was on loan for 18 months there, hoping that they'll do the same for Edwards, uh, who looked pretty bright in this game as well. Fleetwood's bench was Ched Evans, Paul Coots, Mark Duffy, Barry, McGar- Barry Mackay, rather, Wes Burns, uh, Alex Cairns and Harrison Holgate. So, you know, it's clearly a very strong squad they've built. They've got Shrewsbury and Oxford this week. Could be a team that, that will start climbing the table at, uh, at some point. League two. George, we should probably talk about the league leaders, Newport County, who mm. made very light work of Bradford City on the weekend. 3-0 winners. Mike Flynn's Amber Army marching on. Yeah, we, we run out of praise superlatives to say about Newport because every weekend it's just the same. They are so good in every single aspect of their play. They are defensively incredibly solid. They find a variety of ways to win. They are pretty assured on the ball, although again, going back to the old possession chat, this was a very different performance from them back to the kind of Newport that we're used to. Far less um, retaining the ball in deeper areas. Um, again, they went one up within a minute, so that's going to have a huge bearing on the way that the, the game pans out. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's so impressive um, what Mike Flynn is doing here. Um, and, you know, they're top of the league and it would take, I would say, a pretty brave man to argue that they are not the best team in the league. I wouldn't necessarily say that with Lincoln. I wouldn't necessarily say that with, um, with Reading either. But with Newport, on all evidence... I, I, I don't really see how we can't. Mm. Well, Forest Green might have something to say about that. They got a win against Morecambe from behind, played very poorly for, for an hour or so in this game before turning it around. Jake Young looks an interesting player. He scored his first senior goal last weekend and his second this weekend to start the comeback to make it 1-1. They picked him up from Sheffield United in the summer and it, it was one of those that obviously went under the radar. It, it kind of looked like a, a youth player who'd probably who who wasn't who was out of favour at Sheffield United, just being released and picked up in League Two. But I think there was actually an extent to which it was it was you know they they went after him, um, and you know this wasn't necessarily someone that was just being discarded from from Sheffield United. So uh, he's had a really impressive start. Like I think he's a striker, but he's been playing all over. Uh, for this Forest Green side, Jamil Matt was was excellent. His hold up play has been a real boon for for Forest Green this season, and obviously scored the winner with a towering header as well. So uh, a good win for them uh, against Morecambe. And then George, we had a, another slightly farcical situation, sadly, uh, with COVID nineteen affecting things. The Exeter Scunthorpe game. Scunthorpe obviously already on pretty poor form. They didn't really need anything else to affect them, but they turned up here with six players uh, self-isolating after two positive tests, I believe. They also turned up with the the goalkeeper coach running things because uh, Russ Wilcox was awaiting the result of a test and Neil Cox uh, was self-isolating as well, having come into close contact with the assistant manager, Mark Lillis, who had tested positive for COVID-19 earlier in the week. We still haven't quite got our finger on why games are getting called off and why games are going ahead. Um, and it might be the case that Scunthorpe wanted this game to go ahead. So we can't say for sure because we don't know the intricacies of all of the cases, but it's really undermining things at the moment, I'm finding. And, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a bit of an issue, isn't it? It's a massive issue that every game day we're having some teams playing games where their squad has been decimated by absentees. And on the same day, you have games that have been postponed to prevent teams with playing with a squad that's been decimated Mm. by absentees. It doesn't make any sense. When you look at the Oxford-Swindon game on on Tuesday, and and I'm sorry, on Saturday, and I'm definitely not here in any way to suggest any foul play by any of these guys at all. 
you know, I would I would always kind of err on the side of caution here and think that basically if there's any risk, games shouldn't be going ahead. But all reports suggested there that Spindon only had two players who are unavailable and, and the majority of the positive tests were in the backroom staff. So how there can be a line drawn that, is, that isn't clear to either management, coaching staffs, clubs or you know us fans, which can say that that one is OK to, to be postponed if the team want to, but then a team like Cyber Scunthorpe, where they have been um, quite clearly more effective than, than that, it's it's really tough. I, I think just for the the sake of the league to prevent it being a case where, you know, realistically for Oxford they'd have been in a much stronger, probably unfairly stronger position had both the Crew game and the Swindon game gone ahead because they'd have been playing against weakened sides. But they'll look at other teams in the league and think to themselves, "Well, why is that? Why are they allowed to play against a weakened team if we weren't?" It's the the inconsistencies um, are really frustrating, and it just feels like such an easy. Uh, I mean, nothing about this is easy, but in terms of just making people's lives easier, you have to just come up with very clear, very obvious rules, very obvious you know, boxes that need to be ticked before games go ahead. That has to be the way. And if a box isn't ticked, if you cannot um, adhere to one of the rules, then like it or lump it, you have to play. Scunthorpe, actually, going back to it, performed pretty well, considering like in the face of such adversity in that sense. They lost 3-1 to Exeter. They weren't helped by a goalie, Mark Howard, who signed two days before, really chucking one in uh, to go 2-0 down. They performed fine in this game, but they have lost five league games in a row now, uh, conceding 15 in that time and scoring two. So, you know, they are having a really tough time on and off the pitch for for Exeter without wanting to bang on about it too much. uh, It was academy graduates as well coming to the fore. Six of them featured in, in the squad. Joel Randall is the the breakout star, you'd say, this season with four goals in eight games. But you've also got Matt Jay finding his role and position in the team more so than previously. He got a goal and an assist. He's one of those really nice sort of technical players and maybe, maybe some managers wouldn't find a place for him to thrive because maybe physically he's not as good and uh, and whatnot, but but a creative player, a good player, and Archie Collins is, is, looks classy as ever. So um, really good times for Exeter at the moment, a good win there. The Colchester 2, Harrogate 1 game was remarkable. I had this one on uh, at Quest on Saturday, and every single time I looked up in the first half, Harrogate were playing like four one-twos, getting, <laughs> getting into Colchester's box and then somehow not scoring. And then for Colchester to go 2-0 to go up, you know, one deflected long-range strike and then one admittedly very good goal from Stevenson and hang on. It it, it didn't feel like the right result, I have to admit. And I, I would have felt bad saying this, but Christian, uh, Cole U fan, tweeted us his Sunday scouting report saying, winning when not playing well is the mark of a good team, they say. But we were woeful for most of that. Harrogate are a proper team and outplayed us for 80 minutes. Should have been out of sight well before half-time. So, you know, in the space of a week or four days, they beat Forest Green and they beat Harrogate. I don't think their fans are necessarily getting carried away because if they've watched both games, they've probably seen their side be be second best. And of course, it's better to pick up six points than no points. But I think Cole Hughes still have a, a way to go to, to be a, a playoff side like they were last season. George, what about Oldham 1, Port Vale 2, or Stevenage 0, Leighton Orient 2, or Tranmere 2, Southend 0? Uh, did anything particularly catch your eye in uh, in those games? I, I guess we have to say that Port Vale were much improved. Um, the oppositions that we're talking about here in Stevenage, Oldham and Southend, if, at the moment, I'm not going to give teams too much credit for seeing them off. Mm. But <clears throat> old, but Port Vale certainly 
looked more threatening, played with a bit more attacking intensity, um, and you know got an away win, which after a tricky run um, was much welcome. Um, but with, with Tranmere, you know you'd expect them to win this game and win it easily. They just about managed that, although Southend will feel like they maybe could have had a penalty early on in the game. Um, but it, it's a win. It's an important win for them. It was a very, very good time for them to play the poorest team in the division at home because it had been a difficult start for Michael Jackson. Um, you saw the reaction of of, um, of Clark with the first goal with the header. That was the reaction of a senior pro who knows that things haven't really been good enough so far. Um, big relief and passion. So we'll see how they get on from here. Um, I'm not, you know, I was very positive about Tranmere preseason. I'm certainly not anymore. But they still, they still quite clearly have the quality in the team. I mean, you look through that starting lineup when you've got Vaughan playing up top with Feeney off the right, Otis Khan on the left, Jay Spearing in the middle. I mean, they these are players who most teams in League Two would absolutely love to have in their team. So um, a couple of easy look, well, not easy, but fixtures that they won't mind coming up with Crawley tomorrow night away and then Morecambe at home on, on, on the weekend. If they can put a, put a little run together, it won't be long till they're back up where they think they should be. Mm. And Orient had a great week, uh, of course. They lost last weekend to Grimsby 3-2, having lost previously to Walsall that midweek. Um, but then Tranmere were done 1-0 away from home and, and Stevenage 2-0 away from home as well. So kind of summing up what we think about Leighton Orient at the moment, if and when they click with players like McEnough, Maguire Drew, Danny Johnson... They are excellent at times in periods, but there's too much inconsistency. There's too many poor performances in there. You know, they were quite lucky to be nil-nil at halftime. Vigaru kept the minute in goal. So um, there are a few sides in League Two where on a Monday after they win, you've got to be quite careful being too positive about them because realistically, it, it, they might not be robust. They might have just had a good period in a game and, and got a win. And it, it, it can work the other way around as well, where you don't want to be too negative in defeat. But... You know, Orient are a side who that they they flick so much between their top performance level and a poor performance level, and that's really holding them back at the moment. So hopefully that will improve for them uh, over the course of the season. But I'm not sure there's that much evidence from last season to suggest that it will. Um, David Amu getting a lot of credit uh, returned for Port Vale, and uh, that coincided with their best performance of the season. Worrell moved out to the left. He's had a really poor start to the season by his standards, but seemed to be. Uh, reaching previous high performance levels. Uh, Nathan Smith at the back for Port Vale. I feel like we bring him up pretty much every time, but he's an absolutely magnificent player at that level uh, and part of a very good Port Vale defence, as we know. Them keeping hold of him this summer was a huge surprise and a huge positive for, for the Vale side. And one of the reasons why we were quite bullish on them heading into the season. I wouldn't say they're necessarily living up to that just yet, but um, you know, at the very least with him and Leg at the back, they just have that solid foundation, which is uh, pretty handy to, to build on top of. We're going to finish the pod by bringing up Ian Evert again. Kind of unavoidable. Last week, we spoke about Evert's strong words about his team's mentality. And this weekend, it's not the squad that he's set in his sights, but one player in particular, Billy Krellin, 20-year-old uh, goalkeeper on loan from Fleetwood. He's been part of England youth setups in the past and is very highly rated, uh, evidently, but he's having a very, very tough time. And... You know, first thing to say before we delve into the quotes, objectively, Krellin hasn't been playing very well, uh, it's fair to say, and had a bit of a howler in this game and hasn't covered himself in glory, hasn't performed to a very high standard this season. Ian Everett, uh, after the game, said, he cost us the first goal, in my opinion, at Barrow on Tuesday, 
maybe the second one as well. And then this today. So this is me saying to him publicly, man up. I've had that conversation privately. This is a man's game. Three points are at stake and my team deserved to win today. This has caused quite a lot of consternation online with the Bolton fan base. And it's not hard to see why, George, that, that sort of language and terminology specifically, yeah. A, is nonsensical and B, really doesn't have any place in, in, the, in the world, in the game, in, in no. management of young players. Yeah, I mean, it, this has to be... The irony is is that he was trying to teach him a lesson and this has to be a lesson for Ian Everett um, where he's got to learn that you can't speak like that. You can't publicly uh, shame your players like that, use language like this as well. Um, he's clearly a guy who's under a lot of pressure um, and that is showing. Um, but yeah, I mean, th- there's no place for this at all. I got annoyed in the pod last week about the way that he spoke about his players, the way he was willing to throw them under the bus. I'm sure he'll say that he's got his way of doing things, but um, it was good to kind of see the general kind of football community um, speak out against this because you know, he can't behave like that. On Sunday, Ian Everett spoke uh, about it and said the terminology should have been better and I apologise for that if any com- uh, offence has been caused. What I'd meant was that there's a big step up between junior football and senior football and Billy does, does have to get to grips with that as soon as possible. I've spoken to him this morning and he understands what I meant. He agrees with the sentiment, in fact, so there's no problem there at all. Ian Everett needs to express himself much better because then he will avoid these situations. It's been a week of Ian Everett saying things and many observers frowning and saying, hold on, this is not the right way to to express yourself. So I think also just aside from the phrasing, the thing that I don't really like, and I've never been part of of a professional football dressing room, but I don't really like him saying, I've just said this to him in the dressing room and now I'm saying it to you publicly. Like, is is there an extent to which... You would just say it to him in the dressing room and say, "But I'm, you know, I'm know. going to support you publicly." That that's we've seen a lot of managers do that sort of thing before, right? Like it was kind of Jose Mourinho 101, wasn't it? it was like, yeah, I'll, yeah. "I'll probably be very rude to you in the dressing room, but in the public, in public, I'm going to support you fully." And you know, anecdotally at least, that seems to build a, a, the sort of team spirit that that helped that team become a, a winning football team. So yeah, it's a that was an uh, an unpleasant addition to the weekend league two action and coverage i think and uh, uh, yeah. a shame but i thought important to talk about on the pod um thank Definitely. you george for your company today always a pleasure to talk efl action with you and we've got a, f- a full set of midweek fixtures as well things are moving very very swiftly at the moment aren't they mm. yeah absolutely it's no no rest for us at the moment but um yeah wouldn't have it any other way join us on on, on thursday for the betting show also on Thursday for the Totally Football League show, Extra Time. We've got some good guests lined up this week for that. Um, and join us on Friday night on Sky Sports as well. Um, we're really enjoying our, our 10, 15-minute segment that we've been given around 10, 15 till 10, 30. Um, hopefully you've been enjoying it as well. If you haven't seen it yet, uh, if you head to our Twitter page, at NTT20Pod, we have tweeted out the clip from last Friday. We've pinned it to the top of the profile. Give it a watch, see what you think. Um, we, we're really enjoying talking about young players in the EFL and being able to, to delve a little bit deeper than you sometimes get um, in TV where things are moved on quite quickly. There's, there's not always a huge amount of time to, to really go deep into a subject. So we're grateful for, for that opportunity and uh, hope you'll join us again on Friday night uh, for the Reading Coventry game. As George mentioned earlier as well, we'll be paying, we will be playing Fanslide. Uh, Fanslide is an in-play fantasy game which we've been playing the last few weeks. 
loads of you guys have been joining in and feedback's been really good we're really chuffed that so many of you are enjoying it i just think it's such a good companion to, to watching a live game especially uh, at the moment when we can't really go out much on friday nights uh, it's it's a great accompaniment to uh, watching the live game on the friday night so do download the app it's free to join it's free to play uh, there'll be a 150 pound prize pot split between the top five on Friday night. We hope you'll join us on Fanslide for that. So thank you for listening this week. Um, thanks as always for all of your support. Those of you who joined the, the live stream last week, we can't thank you enough for um, your contributions to that. We, we're not doing one this week, but we will look to do one certainly again in the next few weeks and hopefully avoid the, the audio issues that we encountered at the start of that. Um, and uh, thanks very much. Go well, have a good week. We'll speak again soon.